It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, and welcome to another of the New Abnormal special bonus episodes. We're so excited to have you here today. Today, we have a very special guest with Masha Gessen, who's an author and journalist who writes brilliantly on authoritarians. So today we're going to have her teach us why we all should care about this subject. We're so thrilled to have you today. Thank you. First, I want to talk to you. You wrote this piece in The New Yorker last week or this week or today. (laughs) Who even knows? In In the Forever Tuesday, yeah. Right, exactly. And it was, and I know you've written about this in your books and you've written about this before, but it was so struck by it. And... I wanted to talk to you about this idea that we kind of got off easy this time. The piece I, I published right after the election was, uh, or right after the election, we're still in the election. It's like we're always in March and always in, in the election. It's about the concept of an autocratic breakthrough. I borrowed that idea from a Hungarian sociologist, Balint Magyar, whose work I've used a lot. He's brilliant and has developed this very detailed model based on studying the Central and Eastern European democratic backsliding. And he divides autocracies into three stages, autocratic attempt, autocratic breakthrough, and autocratic consolidation. Now, what distinguishes the autocratic attempt is that it is reversible by electoral means. And the thing is, like, we don't know, or we don't necessarily always know, when the autocratic attempt is over, when it has passed into autocratic breakthrough. But he suggests that there are structural changes and institutional changes that aspiring autocrats put in place that create the process of autocratic breakthrough. And after you pass through the autocratic breakthrough, it is no longer possible to dislodge the autocrat by peaceful means. So what he looks at is what he calls the vertical of vassalage, which I think is a beautiful term. Weirdly, Putin uses a similar term and has used a similar term ever since he came to power 20 years ago. He was talking about vertical of power or the power vertical. And by this, he meant that, you know, he thinks that the whole sort of system of checks and balances is really unwieldy. You just should have a single command center. <laughs> and, you know, like you figure that you, you decide what, what, what needs to happen at the top and then it gets passed down to the bottom and that's much more efficient. But the concept of vertical of vassalage is more evocative and more accurate Because it's really, it's like this vertical loyalty network. There are these people who are put in place by the aspiring autocrat who are bound to him because he gave them the power. He often gives them the money or the access to accumulating wealth through power and they owe him loyalty. And this is a very important thing to modern autocracies, right? They're all like mafia states, basically. So Donald Trump, what I'm arguing in in this piece is that Donald Trump not only is he refusing to admit electoral defeat, but he's actually trying to activate a vertical of vassalage that he's put in place. And so far, you know, it's not a terribly impressive one, but it's not an unimpressive one. What he's done is he's created these, these verticals that you can trace, you know, from Trump to Mitch McConnell 
to all the judges and three Supreme Court justices that Mitch McConnell got through the Senate. Or you can trace it through uh, from Trump down to Bill Barr and the Justice Department that he's turned into his personal law firm or personal law enforcement agency and private law firm. We're seeing this vertical reacting in ways that Trump expects it to. You know, we're seeing Bill Barr sort of issue this weird memo, basically saying, okay, re-examine the votes before they've even been finally tallied up. We're seeing Mitch McConnell go along with refusing to admit, admit electoral defeat. I think at this point, this vertical will probably not hold up Trump to the desired end of, of staying in power. But we can see the outlines. Right, for the next time. For the next time, exactly. And this is something you know, Zainab Tufekci wrote about it in, in The Atlantic. She suggested that the next autocrat will be more competent. I don't know that it's necessarily a question of competence. I actually think incompetence is something that autocrats weaponize really well. It's like the destruction they wreak is all the more effective and total because of their incompetence. But what I do know is that the incoming Biden administration will have to dismantle this vertical. And to dismantle the vertical, it will really have to examine what allowed it to be constructed. Yes. And that's where your piece from today comes in. Will you talk a little bit about that? Because we just had Ellie on the podcast, too. Uh huh. Great. Yeah, I agree with this idea, too. So the piece I, I, I published today on the day that we're recording is a piece in favor of reckoning. And I'm arguing against a fairly longstanding American tradition of sort of staying the hand of vengeance. Uh, ever since Ford pardoned Nixon, there's been this idea that um, presidential magnanimity has to extend to his predecessor and that the right thing to do politically is to move on. So there's a direct line from, from Ford to Barack Obama, who decides not to appoint a special, counsel, a special prosecutor to investigate illegal detention uh, and torture under President George W. Bush, or to even take a closer look at the Iraq war. Right? I think that Biden is po poised. He and Kamala Harris signaled in their victory speeches that, um, that unity and healing are their goals. And these are goals that, that I share, right? But I think that the way that American politics have generally pursued unity and healing is by kind of putting a Band-Aid on the thing and pretending it never happened. And I don't think that's what you do with a festering wound. I think you have to clean it out and then you stitch it up and that's no guarantee of healing, but it's the best chance you have. You definitely can't let it fester. I try to take the argument a little bit away from this argument about whether we should have truth and reconciliation commissions or whether it should be sort of the regular institutions, regular trials, regular investigations, congressional hearings, I'm not sure that that's that important. Like, that's not the question. Yeah. The question is, is there a national commitment to reckoning? And we may not need truth and reconciliation commissions. Uh, Jill Lepore has argued, I think, very forcefully that we don't need them because we have regular institutions. And Ellie has argued back, you can't use those regular institutions. They failed. I think they're both right. We may not need to invent brand new rituals of storytelling, but we either need to use existing rituals of storytelling, right? And that's a weird way to re refer to courts, but that's what courts are, right? They are ritualized 
story factories, and so are congressional hearings, and so are uh, special counsel investigations, and so can be town hall meetings, so are certainly journalistic investigations. All of those are possibilities for a reckoning, right? But there has to be, it can't be like some heroic prosecutor somewhere. It can't be the Southern District of New York pounding uh, Trump into the ground. That's not the point. The point is not to pound him into the ground. The point is to actually have a conversation about what happened to us, how we did it to ourselves, and and how we can recover. Right. And how we can prevent it the next. It almost feels like you're making a case for more narrative nonfiction. I am perhaps making a case for more narrative nonfiction, but the problem with narrative nonfiction, again, you know, it's like if we leave it to, and of course, you know, I say this a couple of hours after Twitter was went aflame because there are rumors that Trump negotiating $100 million <laughs> worth of, of book deals, right? Yeah. Like, it's just disgusting. That's not the kind of narrative nonfiction that I mean. But it also points up the problem. You can't leave it to profit-oriented publishing houses. Right. right? Whether it's, you know, long-form magazine articles or, or books, that's not where it happens. It has to be a public-oriented commitment. Yeah, like Nuremberg, but without the punishment, right? Exactly, yeah. You know, Nuremberg, again, it created a story. Like, after Nuremberg, there was a story to tell about the Nazi regime. It had been written down, it had been documented, people had been heard. And a lot of the time where truth and reconciliation commissions have functioned, it's where people who've suffered the trauma are voiceless. That's not always true in this country, right? There we have longer legacies where people have been systematically deprived of, of their public voice, right? You know, the legacy of racism, the legacy of colonization. The story of the last four years is not necessarily primarily a story of the voiceless being uh, suffering trauma, right? I mean, we're very voiceful here on the left. Yeah. <laughs> it almost feels like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is my own like experience of the last four years. The, what we've seen the most trauma inflicted on besides the ICE situation and the children being separated from their parents and, you know, all of that really tragic, serious dictatorship stuff. The other thing I've seen, it almost feels like he's an you know, inflicted a lot of this trauma on federal government employees. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that, you know, there's been a wholesale debasement of government. Uh, we have seen people, you know, who've tried to, who actually, you know, haven't lied about trying to stay in the system to to to, to stay in the house on fire. But but actual, you know, people like Colonel Vindman or, or Fiona Hill, who I think truly try to put out the fire while staying inside the house, right? And lots of people whose names we don't know in, in the State Department, in, in the national security establishment. I think that sort of the major national trauma, there's several nexuses. One is, as you mentioned, ICE. And we have all suffered moral injury by being complicit in the creation of concentration camps and putting children in cages. It's not like too grand a pronouncement to say that. It's just a fact. We have all been victimized and traumatized by the handling of the pandemic. To have a government that basically communicates that people's lives are disposable, that they're worthless. Your family's lives, your friends' lives, your own life. I mean, that's a huge psychic. And again, to to all of us, 
to people who suffered physically and financially, you know, got sick and, and God forbid died, but also to all of us who are watching this and feeling helpless to do anything about it. And of course, his reaction to Black Lives Matter, the fanning of, of, of more racism, the use of troops against protesters, that's also moral injury inflicted on, on all of us. And I think just just like watching this debasement of government, right? It's like for four years, do you remember when he first replaced Obama on television? And it was like that sense of like, oh my God, this is just embarrassing to watch. Yeah. And then we lived with it for four years. You have to look and you have to listen, but it makes you ashamed. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. When picking a commerce platform for your business, you have two choices. Or, I prefer, don't you? That's the sound you'll hear when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell, online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Shopify is the best all-in-one commerce platform capable of handling your business's complexity no matter how big you grow. Step up to Shopify and harness the best converting checkout and the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands like Rothy's, Allbirds, Brooklinen, and so much more. You're probably thinking, sure, but migrating is going to be a headache. Shopify's app store has the migration apps you need to migrate your products, orders, customers, and more from every major e-commerce platform to Shopify. If you're anything like me, you're one of those don't put me in a box people. Everyone who knows me knows. I'm a don't put me in a box person. And thankfully, Shopify never will, because with Shopify, control of your brand and business is always in your hands, from your storefront look to your back office operations. I hate when checking out from an online store and then having to pull out my credit card and type in all those numbers. A Shopify store remembers my shipping address and payment information. So if I'm on the couch and my wallet is on the kitchen counter... I don't even have to get up. Stop leaving sales on the table. Switch your business to Shopify and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their business. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash abnormal, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com slash abnormal, all lowercase. Shopify.com slash abnormal. to be looking and listening. A lot of my friends who've lived in Russia and in Eastern Europe have, especially today actually, but it also previously have really had a visceral horror. I was shocked by Trump's inauguration speech because I was like, 
the government isn't supposed to work against me. Like, you know, I didn't know that happened. But my friends who grew up in Eastern Europe and Russia were all like, they were, I think, ultimately more used to it, but also more terrified by it. I, I think that's exactly right. But it's it's more familiar. I think it was more legible to people who have lived in autocracies that maybe Eastern Europe or Russia it can be, you know, Berlusconi's Italy, Erdogan's Turkey, Netanyahu's Israel. There are lots and lots of examples around the world that prepare you to recognize what he's actually saying. And so, yeah, so you're, you, you read it better and, and you get more scared faster. You talk in this piece, and you've talked about this before, this idea of accountability. Everyone has been talking about this today because of this, you know, how... Like, people are saying, well, you shouldn't hire anyone from the Trump administration. I'm hearing a lot of people looking for jobs and different businesses. And I have a friend who is inter- who is someone they called. They said, I wasn't working for da-da-da, even if I was in the administration. So I'm curious to know what your feeling is on this. My feeling on that is that the, the most important part is to have that be the subject of public conversation. Like, that's part of the reckoning. What happens to these people. Right now, what happens is that, you know, the, uh, their career paths, and there have been so many people who have gone through that, the revolving door, door of that administration, that we know quite well what happens. They find work in think tanks, they find, they get prestigious fellowships, like Sean Spicer at Harvard Kennedy School. They get lucrative jobs in private business, like Miles Taylor, the yeah, the so-called anonymous, the high-leveled, <laughs> high-level um, administration official who got who got a high-level job at, at Google, right? I mean, my personal feeling is that it should be embarrassing; it, it shouldn't happen. But I don't know, right? There has to be some way in which we think about this collectively. Do you think that if there's sort of sunlight brought in? that we are less likely, because my whole anxiety is that this is going to be 2024 and we're going to have a Tucker Carlson presidency. And, you know, I, I am no fan of Tucker Carlson by any stretch of the imagination, nor is he of mine, but he is much smarter than Donald Trump. Right. And so I feel like we have four years to sort of make sure this doesn't happen again. Exactly. No, that's that's exactly right. We have we probably have less. Right. The next election campaign is going to start in two years. Your wish list to prevent this is why my wish list is that Joe Biden stops saying build back better and says we have to reinvent American democracy. What made this possible? And then all sorts of answers offer themselves, like the role of money in government, right? the role of money in politics, the gerontocratic duopoly that we call the two-party system, like the unregulated, profit-driven media and not, with no alternative, like a system that has devolved to the point where the only way things to get done politically is for one party to have a monopoly on power. This is something that when we look at other countries, we get very leery, right, of, of, of countries that have where one party has a monopoly on political power, meaning the executive branch and both chambers of, of, of a parliament. But in our country, it has come to the point where governing is almost impossible unless there's the trifecta. Uh, so these are things that we have to talk about, and that's just institution. And then what do we talk about culturally? What What is it in us that made this possible? Why do you think a place like the UK... They had Boris. Boris is basically, I mean, he's slightly smarter version of Trump, but a lot of the same sort of base instincts got him elected. Are European governments safer? Are we too dependent on a president? I mean, is this 
for because of executive orders and you know, Congress giving away its power. You know, people have argued about this for a long, long time. And there are lots of people who will tell you that a parliamentary system, a multi-party system, uh, and usually parliamentary systems are multi-party systems, right, is is much safer against this sort of demagogue. But, you know, there are lots of European countries where that doesn't seem to have exactly held up. There's the counter argument that, um, and this is actually an argument that Hannah Arendt subscribed to, which is that, no, a two-party system is safer because in a two-party system, one party assumes the grave responsibility of government, right? And so, and that, and the possibility of being in power, like always being a hair's breadth from power, keeps parties from going over the ideological edge and, um, and sort of keeps, keeps things sane and keeps things responsible, yeah, that's, that may hold up until somebody like Trump shows up and goes over the ideological ledge without even realizing what he's doing. I think the answer is that there's no system that is foolproof. And democracy is not the building of systems. Democracy is a process. It's a process of negotiation. We create systems in order to facilitate the negotiation that is actually democracy. Right? We create systems in order to have a conversation about how we live together as a country. And we have to keep recreating those systems and, and reinventing them because otherwise they just get shaky and, and, and vulnerable. And like you can't just like put a little spackle on them and keep living in them when they've had an infestation. Do you think that this is also in some way a call for like a larger conversation about morality? And I don't mean morality in the sort of traditional morality. I mean more of like our, it feels, again, like our politics have gotten very removed from like, you know, the sort of questions of doing the right thing because it's right, which was sort of the larger, you know, that sort of ended with Nixon. And I wonder if there's any way to sort of unring that bell. Yeah, I think that's that's a great leading question. And I, I, I um, you know, in, in, in my book, I talk about, how moral aspiration is actually the only way to really oppose autocracy. Like where we've seen successful dissident movements, you know, movements that actually mobilize people around them, is where those movements have been based on on, on moral aspiration. And you know, and what we've seen with Donald Trump, the people, look at the people that who, who scare him. There are people like John Lewis, like Elijah Cummings, like AOC and the Squad. Yes, not coincidentally, all people of color, but I think perhaps more centrally, all people who place moral aspiration at the center of their politics. And he's like, you know, a witch afraid of water with them. I think a lot about Ukraine because it, it ended up being such a central part of the Trump presidency, but it is also, I feel like that's an example of a country where they sort of took their power back. You mean, you mean after the, the revolution of dignity? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a country that's still in transition. It's like forever in transition. Uh, but I find the example of Ukraine in some ways incredibly inspiring, right? It's like It's like a country that just keeps trying to get it right. And every time somebody comes along and, and they have lots of people coming along who try to usurp power and the system is, 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 very, is very fragile, it's very new. And so they succeed in usurping power for a little bit and then the people say, no, no, gotta go, you know, let's try again. And they keep trying. And it's, you know, it's a really beautiful thing. It's so interesting. Are you optimistic? Please tell me you're optimistic. No, don't tell me. You're, what do you think? Are you? I'm hopeful. Okay. I think it's distinct from optimistic, right? I'm hopeful because I think that times of, of crisis are also times of great political opportunity. We know this, right? This is like empirically shown. 
And even in the last year, we've seen it at least twice. You know, we, we see incredibly inspiring things and huge shifts in the way that people think politically that happen in the middle of like some dire crisis. So there's great possibility. And I'm, you know, I'm, of course, disheartened that 70 million Americans with probably no benefit of Russian interference or aliens from outer space cast their votes for Donald Trump. Um, but I'm also like, I love these people that we've elected in the end. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> like, if you look at Bolson, Bolsonaro, I always say it wrong, Bol- Bolsonaro, the secret for these populists to stay in power is they give people money, right? I mean, or at least that's what happened there. And so I, I'm sort of amazed that it never occurred to Trump to do that, and people still voted for him. I would push back against that a little bit. I think autocrats actually thrive on scarcity and instability. What they do is they dangle the carrot of stability and the carrot of prosperity, but it never comes. But it's like the harder, the more anxious people are, the less likely they are to opt for change. Are you surprised that Putin didn't interfere more in this election? I I mean, I don't know to what extent he interfered, but look, I think that Russian trolls got incredibly lucky four years ago. And we've been very stupid to focus on it as much as we have. And I've tried to say that over the last four years over and over. It's not like they had some huge, brilliant operation. (laughs) They're agents of chaos, right? We know what they do. Agents of chaos, apparently, and it shouldn't come as a surprise, can have amazing success um, and outsized influence in conditions of chaos. But they didn't create it. They just stumbled into it. It's like their ideas of America actually happened to meet America where it was. And that's the problem. Like, the problem is not Russian interference. The problem is that we sunk so low, or we sank so low four years ago, that like we met Russian interference where it came in. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Oh, this is so interesting. Thank you so much for this. Thank you for the conversation. On that note, we'll wrap up this episode of The New Abnormal from The Daily Beast. In future episodes, we'll be talking with smart folks from The Daily Beast and beyond from media, culture, politics, and science, who will help us understand what's happening to our country and the world. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and share the show on social media. We're just getting started and don't want you to miss an episode. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm Molly Jongfast, and he's The Rick Wilson. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again on the next episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.